Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Our passage this morning is verses 27 through 36. And as you make your way there, I would like to thank you for welcoming me once again. My name is Matt Ucy. I pastor a church in West Palm Beach, Florida called Truth Point Church. It's a sister church of yours. Uh, before that, I was a minister in Hawaii. And I, uh, I apologize to those of you who are disappointed that I'm not wearing an Aloha shirt. My last several times preaching here, here I've donned one, but you know, times are changing, man. You got to roll. Uh, it is an honor to be with you again. My relationship with you goes back a decade. I preached here first a decade ago, and some of you, my relationship goes back two decades or even three decades with. So uh, what a joy it is to be able to worship the Lord together. And Max, my brother, happy birthday. It's an honor to be here with you on this day. Love you deeply. Uh, this section of the Gospel of Luke is known as the Sermon on the Plain. It is an address given by the Lord Jesus on uh, a level plane just after appointing his 12 apostles. He gives this address or this sermon, it seems, in the presence of a great crowd of people from all over the Roman Empire. He preaches here the uh, ethics and wisdom of his kingdom that are so different of the wisdom and ethics of the kingdom of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire which dominated so much of the world. And this passage is perhaps Jesus' most well-known teaching, the golden rule and the call to love one's enemies. It is difficult, and as I pray we will see together, it is a tremendously freeing teaching. So I'd like to invite you, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's holy word, I'll be reading Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36 from the English Standard Version. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, would you grant your blessing by your Spirit to this your word. O oh Lord, show us our great need. Lord, you know every one of our greatest needs. Show them to us, and O oh Lord... Don't stop there. Show us Christ, our great Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Please have a seat. One of the, uh, one of the first idioms or axioms that uh, a church planter uh, learns to use to inspire people in their core group, kind of, to be salt and light in their communities and to be gatherers, to gather people to the new church plant is this. You choose your friends but God chooses your neighbors. You ever heard that? You choose your friends, but God chooses 
your neighbors. I remember uh, hearing and repeating this phrase, phrase often in my first call as a pastor in, uh, when I served at a church plant in Redmond, Washington, which is a suburb just out of Seattle, actually, in that call. Some of the people in this sanctuary supported me financially. So uh, if I've never thanked you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but we wanted those in our fledgling church plants to, uh, in our church plant to understand that the people that they lived amongst, the people who surrounded them, uh, were not there on accident, that God was the one who chose their neighbors for them, and that they were called to be salt and light to those very people and to invite them to church where they would hear the gospel, which is the very power of God unto salvation. You choose your friends, but God chooses your neighbors. It's a bit of a pithy expression, right? But but I, as I've come to appreciate all the more as I age, pithy can be powerful. You choose your friends. God chooses your neighbors. It's true. But it can also be unnerving, can it? We would love to choose our neighbors. Sometimes we work hard and aspire to live in neighborhoods where we know people, right? We don't like to be amongst uh, strangers. We would love to choose our own. And in a similar way, we would love to choose those we're called to love, right? We want to practice love according to our own priorities or our own personalities. We would love to demarcate, right, the neighborhood of people who receive our affection. We would love to do that naturally. You know, who would that be? Well, normally, uh, but not always, it would include our blood relatives, um, our friends, and people whose relationship gives uh, us a sense of purpose, people who agree with us, perhaps people who look like us or people who would otherwise benefit us. But as we'll see in our passage, this is not the way of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is not what we were called from death to life to practice, to live out. Here, we see that as the beloved people of the Lord, we are called to love people who, from our perspective, do not benefit us. It is our call. And so as we consider this passage together, we're going to see that we're called to love those people who cause us pain and who from the world's eyes or from our own perspective do us no earthly good, right? It's a fun passage, but we want to understand it. It's good for us. It's good for you, friend. And so we want to understand this love and this call to love. And so we're going to ask three questions about this love. First, who is the object of this love? Secondly, what is the response to evil by this love? And then third, where does the motivation come from for this love? So first question we want to ask, who is the object of this love? Now, the Sermon on the Plain is very similar to another passage from the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's so similar that some people actually say that it has to be the same sermon, right? We know that it's on a plane, so maybe, maybe there was a, a mountain, and then right next to it, there was a plane, right? Uh, but it's the same sermon, right? It can't be a different one. It's just edited a bit differently. Now, I believe this is almost certainly not the case, and we don't need to go into it in great detail, but very briefly, Jesus preached a lot. And as is mentioned throughout the Gospels, more than a miracle worker, more than a healer, he was a preacher. You may remember in Mark chapter 1 verse 38, uh, crowds were surrounding him and he said this, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out, right? He was a preacher. 
And in his preaching, he was constantly correcting the false teaching of the rabbis of the day that, the, that his audience had been raised on. Right? His preaching was corrective in nature. It was inspiring. It was enlightened. It was, of course, inerrant, but it was also corrective. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, again, a different sermon, but with very similar themes, very much a parallel passage, we could say, we see this plainly as he says over and again, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Meaning, you have been taught that, but I am telling you this. And what he then did was not give them per se an entirely new teaching, but what he did was he correctly interpreted and implied the Scriptures. He interpreted and implied correct, applied correctly the Old Testament. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks about our passage in Luke 6 and illuminates it for his purpose for us. And so, so we're going to glance at the Sermon on the Mount very briefly in order to understand our call to love here. This is Matthew 5, 43 and 44. The Lord said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this corresponds with our passage starting in verse 27, right? Jesus, what he's doing is he's truly and faithfully interpreting and applying the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself. One of the greatest commands, as the Lord would later say, right? What is the greatest commandment, Lord? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus is doing here is highlighting God's command in the Old Testament that his people are to love their neighbors. And what he's doing here is he is defining what a neighbor is, who a neighbor is, like he does in the parable of the Good, of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Now, what was it that his audience had heard? Who were the neighbors for those according to the, uh, to the rabbis of the day? Well, they taught that those sinners of the Gentiles and those of Israel who were of certain, like, scandalous behavior, right, the, the, the sinners, the tax collectors, and so on, were not neighbors, that they were not neighbors in the sense of the commandment of the Old Testament that we're called to love our neighbor, they were not to be the object of the love commanded by God to his people in the Old Testament. And what the Lord Jesus is doing here is correcting that. He's correctly telling them who their neighbors are. In verse 26, he says, But I say to you who here love your enemies. That is, even our enemies are our neighbors who we are called to love. And now what makes this all the more profound, and we could say uniquely profound because no one in the ancient world was saying anything like this, and we might say no one today says it as well, Matt, but, but, but uh, uh, what makes this all the more profound is that this passage comes immediately after Jesus issues a series of woes upon all types of people. He just pronounced, for example, woe to those who found their salvation in the materialism and acceptance of the world. And when he says, woe to you, what he's saying is that if this is your faith, if this is your belief, that you stand under the just judgment of God, that, that if you have put your trust in wealth, if you have put your trust in um, 
in anything other than the grace found in the one true God, you at that moment are, according to Scripture, an enemy of God. And so, so this is the radical nature of this teaching, that we're called to love those who are right now, as Paul would later say, enemies of the cross of Christ. We are called to love those who stand opposed to our Lord and who are justly due of His judgment. They are enemies, and yet we are to love them as neighbors. Radical. Radical teaching. Uh, When we love these people, we'll find out one day that some of these, we'll call them neighbor enemies, that we love will be saved. Some of them will come to saving faith in Christ. They will be brought from death to life, from darkness to light. That's, uh, this is what Paul says about all of us in Romans 5.10, right? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We are all, or we were all rather, as it says in Ephesians 2, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so these neighbor enemies who are called to love one day might come into the kingdom, right? Might become our dearest brother and sister in the Lord. And yet, even if they're not going to one day come to Christ, and of course we have no way of knowing who will, only God does, we are still called to love our enemies as we live in this kingdom in the world. It's a remarkable thing, difficult thing, that God who chooses our neighbors for us, who places us amongst people who may very well treat us as enemies, calls us to love them. They are our neighbors. They are to be objects of our love. Second question we want to ask is, what is the response to evil by this love? You could say, okay, I can love my enemies so long as they're nice to me. As long as they're good to me, yeah, I can love enemies, right? We might put them in in scare quotes. But here we want to look at what what this love looks like. We're to love our enemies, but how are we to do it? What does it look like? We're told in almost rapid succession what we are to do. This is the second half of verse 30, 27 through 31. I'm going to read it real quickly. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so, or do so to them. Now, how do we understand this? How are we to obey the Lord in this? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is the Lord is not giving us what we would call law here, capital L, law. He is rather illustrating the character of the wisdom of the law. He is giving us what we could call kingdom wisdom. And I'm not trying to slip something unbiblical or unorthodox in there, so we want to understand this. In the law, we could say, The words themselves that God gives describes what obedience looks like. In kingdom wisdom, his words describe the heart behind our obedience. So, for example, when God commands in the law, do not murder, do not steal, and so on, these words describe what obedience looks like. We are not to steal. We are not to murder. We are not to commit adultery. Of course, we know that we can break this in our heart, right, and and break this commandment. Uh, internally while apparently keeping them externally, but, but the law itself, the words of the law itself, the command itself, describes what it looks like. 
But when the Lord says to us in his kingdom wisdom, listen, pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. These words are describing the heart behind our obedience. The words are not describing, we could say, what obedience looks like, praise God, so much as they describe what our ethics are like, what our heart is meant to be like. It's a helpful, and I dare say, necessary clarification to make, and one that the church has historically made universally. I am unaware of a Christian tradition with a bunch of people with their right eyes plucked out or their hands cut off, or who constantly slap each other back and forth on their cheeks. Um, perhaps it exists. I don't want to claim absolute knowledge here, but we're, uh, I'm unaware of it uh, at this time. So, what does the Lord mean here when he says to bless those who curse you? Well, the word itself gives us an idea. It's the Greek word eulogeo. It's where we get the word eulogy from. It's a verb. It's active. We're not called to bless their behavior or to declare their, be- their behavior to be good. We're certainly not called to use our words to declare sinful identities or activities or beliefs as being blessed. We're not called to beatitude the sinful actions and works and thoughts of the world. After all, the Lord Jesus, just in the verses before, declared cursed or woe to different kinds of people and actions and behaviors. But what we are called to do here is to bless them in the sense of speaking well of to bless them and to eulogize them, those people who use their energy and their words to curse us. And, um, and I believe we can do this while opposing their efforts in the world, while, while keeping the Bible's commandments in different areas in life, in all areas in life. I believe that we can and must do this while making winsome arguments about the lies that they promote that we can bless people while opposing what they say, while opposing what they do. But it's a remarkably difficult thing to do, this loving our enemies. We need God's Spirit to even attempt it. We need God's wisdom. We need the wisdom of God's uh, church, of His community of faith, to know what does it look like to bless our enemies in this situation, in that situation. But God God is showing us here, the second person of the Trinity here is showing us the wisdom of his kingdom, the ethics of his kingdom. We see this reality as we're called to respond in love to the evil of our neighbors as we, in verse 28, are called to pray for those who abuse you. It is a a good and an impactful work of love to pray for those who are wronging us, to pray for those who do wicked things for us. R.C. Sproul once told the story of what he called the Pittsburgh Challenge. It was a challenge given by an Episcopal priest to a businessman who gathered for a monthly luncheon in his hometown of Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Challenge was this, pray every day for 30 days for the person you consider to be your greatest enemy on earth. 30 straight days. Pray by name for who you consider to be your greatest enemy on earth. And, uh, And R.C. shared that one of his best friends came to Christ through this challenge. He was not a believer when he attended this this luncheon, Uh, but he started to uh, kind of formulaically pray for the person who he disliked the most. And through the process of that, 
this man who, who would come to be one of R.C. Sproul's best friends, realized that, uh, that he was evil, that he was unworthy of God's love, that he was actually an enemy of Christ. And what that illustrates for us is it's a really hard thing to hate someone who you're actively praying for. Really hard. Uh, we're good at hating, so we can, you know, do it. Um, but it's very difficult. And maybe this is something you should do. I'm not giving you law. I'm not one of your elders or your brother, right? But maybe, maybe you could think of who you consider to be your enemy. Maybe it's someone else in this sanctuary, right? Maybe it's a neighbor down the street. Maybe it's a politician you will never meet, ever. But daily you hate that person. Maybe the Lord's calling you to pray for that person, to pray for those who abuse you in some way, shape, or form. Here the Lord is also calling us to what we could call costly forgiveness and to generosity. That is what turning the other cheek and, and not withholding our tunics and giving to everyone who begs from us means. That, that we're to forgive others in a costly manner and we are to be generous. That this is what Christian ethics look like, what the, the wisdom of the kingdom uh, is like. Forgiveness hurts it hurts. It is not easy. It's a financial term. It means to come away at a loss. Forgiving someone and not repaying them evil for evil hurts. It is painful, right? It means absorbing insults instead of uh, returning them. It means eliminating vengeance as an option as we just heard read to us from Romans chapter 12. That is the Christian way that vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to us. To us belongs the call of mercy. It means seemingly being made a fool because we are so loving and so generous. This is what Paul describes the ministry of the apostles like in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. He said, we are fools for Christ's sake. Finally, as we're asking this question, what is, uh, what is our response to what is our response to evil in this world it's uh, is summarized in the so-called golden rule of verse 31 as you wish that others would do to you do so to them an ethic like this is found in other religions it was back then it's found in ancient greek and confucian writings but interestingly and we you know we don't have time to go deep down this rabbit trail but uh those are always put in the negative do not do to others what you would not want to be done to you. Only Jesus, it seems, puts it in the positive. We are to be actively working for the good of others as we would surely be blessed by the active work for our own blessing. Third question we want to ask, where does the motivation come from for this love? Now, pause button, right? Stop the recording. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we want to recognize at this point that, uh, that if you're feeling the weight of this, you're not alone. This is a radical call. But God gives us a couple things at the end of the passage to help us. He first gives us a summary of his teaching in this section, and then he describes what the motivation to follow him in faith is. I'm going to read verses 35 and 36 again. But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. 
So what is the summary of his teaching that we see? We are to love our enemies in an active way, and we are to be forgiving and generous. That's what this passage is about. We are to love our enemies in an active way, and, that, and we are to be forgiving and generous. And then he gives us the motivation for this. What is the motivation for this? It is the person and character of God. It reflects the character of God. How do we know God? We know him by his attributes. We know him by his, through his word and by his work. And in those things, we describe what God is like, what he is, right? That is how we describe him and by his attributes, he is known. Who is God? This is who God is, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and then countless times throughout the Old Testament. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Again, repeated over and over again in the Old Testament, what one scholar called the quintessential orthodox confession of who God is in the Old Testament. Who is, who is God? He is merciful and gracious. That's who he is. That is who he is. He is not just simply merciful and gracious sometimes on occasion. That's, that's who we are, right? We're merciful and gracious to an extent sometimes. He is the gracious and merciful God, and he is our motivation. This is who he is. Additionally, this merciful God has crowned sinners like you and me with his very sonship. And it says here, what... Uh, you will be sons of the Most High God in verse 35. It's not providing a pathway to becoming uh, God's son. It's not, God is not saying here, the Lord Jesus is not saying here, do this and you will become God's sons. That's not what this means. When he says in verse 35, you will be sons of the Most High, what he's saying is you will demonstrate that you are sons by imitating God's care and compassion for the evil people of the world. You will be being the sons of God. And finally, our motivation is that our reward will be great. God's rewards are great. I wonder if we ask ourselves, why is it so hard to love our neighbors? Why is it so hard to love our enemies? I think we'd eventually get to the point where we would say, uh, even if we couldn't articulate it, um, it's because we're afraid of missing out on the good things in life. Call it a generosity, missing out on monetary things. Um, the call to love, sacrificially, missing out on perhaps the satisfaction of... Uh, of being left alone, right? What Jesus is saying here is that God is the Father who will always repay and reward and bless more than you could ever give away in service of him. He will reward with spiritual blessings in this life and indeed into all eternity, and a single one of those blessings is of more value than all the treasure the world has ever known. He is the one who said in Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. When God calls you to be sacrificial, to forgive, to bless those who curse you, he is not, in the first place, making you earn his love, 
But he is not in the second place calling you to give up something that is of value to you, truly of value to you. He is the God who loves to give you good gifts. He is the God who loves to bless you. He is the God who loves to give you the kingdom. Years ago, I was, uh, I was having lunch with the father of, uh, of a student in my church uh, with whom I was close. Uh, this was, uh, he was a wealthy man, and he was a godly wealthy man at that. He was, and he is a true churchman. But his son was difficult. And he said to me, uh, totally offhanded, not thinking it through, but he said, Matt, I would gladly pay $50,000 to give my son a heart for Jesus. Now, my first thought was, is that going to be cash or check? (laughs) Or like, how are we going to handle the tax situation? Um, But my second thought was, no matter how much money he paid, uh, he could never buy a heart for Jesus, right? Never. But then I thought, if there was a dollar amount that he could pay, that he could have paid, I bet, especially as the years passed, he would have paid it. In fact, I bet that godly man would have given everything he had for his son to love Jesus, as would, as would any person who understands the value of the love of God, right? I rejoice that all of his family is walking with the Lord now, and I never had to deal with those pesky tax implications. But you see, what Jesus is telling us here is that it is the will of God to give us far more precious gifts than money can buy through the means of us loving and being taken taken advantage of by our enemies. That is his way. That is his kingdom, and that is the wisdom of that kingdom. There There is a story that perhaps you've heard before. It's made its way down through the years from the uh, persecution that's so greatly ignored today, uh, that of the Armenian Christians in modern-day Turkey, southern Russia, and northwest Iraq. Uh, This account is detailed in the late Methodist scholar Jeffrey Wainwright's book, Doxology, and it goes like this. A Turkish officer raided and looted an Armenian home. He killed the aged parents and gave the daughters to the soldiers, keeping the eldest daughter for himself. Sometime later, she escaped and trained as a nurse. As time passed, she found herself in a n- nursing in a ward of Turkish officers. One night, by the light of a lantern, she saw the face of this officer. He was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing, he would die. The days passed and he recovered. One day, the doctor stood by the bed with her and said to him, but for her devotion to you, you would be dead. He looked at her and said, we have met before, haven't we? Yes, yes, she said. We have met before. Why didn't you kill me? He asked. She replied, I am the follower of him who said, love your enemies. And uh, I can never get through that. Because as unthinkable as this story is, it is a true story. Just as, listen, just as God gives his people peace that surpasses understanding in times of sorrow that one would think would break a person into pieces, a peace that has been experienced and is being experienced all over the world, 
who have experienced tragedies for thousands of years, millions and millions of times over, so too God has given, and I say, still does give love like this dear sister of ours for enemies like that wicked Turkish officer. This is not fanciful thinking. This is the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world lies dead in sin under a divine curse by its holy and eternal creator. It wars against God and it wars within itself. Yes, people war against God. And as we see in news clips over the weekend, people war against each other. There is hatred and murder and oppression and coveting and abuse and false worship and on and on and on. And all of us have and to some extent do participate in this war, as has every one of our fathers and mothers who came before us, and every one of their fathers and mothers who came before them. And every one of them has had the thought, I may not be perfect, but I'm not the worst of the bunch, as if that were enough to provide peace between them and an eternally holy God when they would one day stand before him. And every one of them were, were dead wrong in that, and for everyone who died in that false gospel, awaited an eternity apart from God and lost forever. And such would be the everlasting fate of every one of us were it not for the mercy of God. Out of that great mercy did God put on flesh. Did he become like us in every way but our sin? His name was Jesus. And he was given that name because it means God saves. And this Jesus loved his enemies and blessed those who cursed him. He even did it from his cross. Think about it. He prayed while being struck and cursed and physically pierced. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is who he is. And that is what he has done. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, we did not earn God's love. None of us did, none of us do. And yet because of his mercy in Christ, we have all of it. All of it. We have the love of God, our first enemy, because of the great work of Christ for us. He is the one who turned his cheek, not only to the sinful strikes of man, but he took the full wrath of God for our sins that we would never be touched by any of it. He is the one whose cloak and tunic were taken from him as he was hung on his cross and who hung on it in earthly shame because of his great love for us. He didn't lend money to sinners. Rather, he gave his life for sinners, and his reward that was great was that you and I would be called sons of the Most High. This is his love, and he gives it to all who turn to him in repentant faith. Turn to him this day, my friend. Turn to him. Be changed by his great love for us. Love out of that love for us, and one day die in that love, the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us, to live perfectly according to the flesh, the, 
the life of righteousness that we owe you to die on our behalf, to spare us from the just judgment of God. Lord, we thank you that we have your wisdom, your kingdom wisdom that frees us from depending on silly things like money and status and holding on to grudges against other people. Thank you, Lord, for freeing us from that. And we pray you would give us hearts of faith to believe you, to believe that you have freed us from this. Oh, Lord, change us by this, your great mercy for us, found in Christ, your beloved Son. For we pray in his name. Amen.